If you're looking to sell your private company's stock, SharesPost has a solution for you. With more than $4 billion in company-approved transactions, SharesPost is the leading marketplace for private company shares. To learn more, visit us at sharespost.com equity. Hello, and welcome back to Equity, TechCrunch's venture capital-focused podcast. I'm TechCrunch reporter Kate Clark, and I'm joined by my co-host, CrunchBase's Alex Wilhelm. How's it going, Alex? It's going uh, really, really well. We raided the Yahoo kitchens. We stole all yeah. the coffee. And Every now time we you are say back. Yahoo, I just can't deal with it. My brain doesn't process it otherwise. But we have um, <laughs> we have a really cool guest this week. So who is who's here with us? We have Greylock General Partner Sarah Goa. Great to be here. Did I get the name right? It was close. Yeah. It's, a, it's hard. We, we always really want to do well by everyone's We name. do, yeah. Um, I but, practiced, but, you know. You no, know, practice some. Uh, we have a fun fact, and uh, this is the new thing to the show, and we kind of humanize the people that show up before they talk. Uh, and we asked Sarah, what is her fun fact? And she said, there's no fun. And I thought that was probably the best response we've had yet. So thank you for fitting Appreciate in. the honesty, definitely. Mm, Seven-year blackout on fun. Just venture all the time in SaaS multiples. Which Alex thinks is fun. Yeah. I mean, SAS multiples are, I, I have a back tattoo that you can't see right now, but it so just says, <laughs> it just says, you know, 10X or bust. And um, we'll see what happens in 2020. Um, Let's start with Grammarly. I think that's the hot topic of the week, right? Actually, the last couple of weeks. Grammarly has been a surprise hit uh, because I didn't think there was going to be enough consumer and SMB demand to actually pay for a product like this. But I've been wrong about similar things before. I didn't think that Office 365 for consumers was going to do very well. I thought it was too expensive and people wouldn't want to have a paid productivity service. But in this case, Grammarly, I think, fits in the same model of people are willing to pay for their own personal work if it actually helps them. So they raised a $90 million round. Yeah. At, a, um, one, at least a billion. At yeah. least a billion. So does that usually mean like a billion and one dollar? Or are they just trying to be more, more coy than we think? I can't say about this particular one. It's close enough. Okay. Oh, no, I meant in general as opposed to like in this yeah, particular case. Yeah, like why wouldn't they just give us the exact number? Yeah, because, uh, because I think companies definitely like to go with like we hit this very large number and there's this glorification of very high valuations versus like does a billion sound better than a billion and 25K, which often happens as you squeeze people in. Yeah. Oh, okay. Right, because so in that yeah. case, that, that would make sense for them to just say 1 billion, but instead they were like, oh, it's over a billion, but we can't, it's near the, like, it's just very oddly... There's a lack of transparency. It feels imprecise in a way that yeah. doesn't make sense. Like, why not just brag about how large it is? But I guess if it's, you know, 1.0025 billion, to your point, why bother? Okay. Uh, if you don't know what Grammarly is, Grammarly is a tool that auto-scans your written work as you type and provides actionable and useful tips on how to make kind of regular improvements. My impression of this tool is that it's for people who don't write for a living. Um, yeah, maybe. But I mean, I, I use the free version and I, th I find it helpful. Like it, so it, it does plug into WordPress, I think. Yep. Yeah. So I, and we use WordPress at TechCrunch to write all of our stories and I, it plugs into my WordPress and I mean, it definitely catches mistakes for me all the time and I'm a professional writer. So I mean, what I meant by that was the problem that I have with Grammarly isn't that it doesn't catch my occasional foible because I make mistakes all the time. Every writer doesn't produce perfectly clean copy, but sometimes when I want to bend English a little bit, it freaks out. And like, no, you can't be stylistic. You like, so the thing is, you bend English 5,000 times more than the average writer. Well, it's because English is fun to bend. <laughs> but my, my point is, there's no option to tell Grammarly, I'm having fun in this paragraph, leave me alone, uh, which I, I struggle uh, with. Yeah, I think what you're, yeah, what you're saying is there's not a lot of ton of room for cr creativity. What I do like is they're launching um, something where they 
I think their AI memorizes your style guide so they can actually correct based off your style guide, which I think is really cool. We don't really have a really strict style guide here at TechCrunch, but I've worked places that have really strict. (laughs) Why is that funny? You do have a style guide. It's not strict. It's not strict. It's more of a guideline. It is there. It exists. Yes. But yeah, other places do have really strict style guides like Crunchbase might. So, I mean, that could be really helpful for those kind of more niche publications that have these really um, set rules. Yeah. Well, one of the extreme fears was if you guys remember Google inbox smart replies, it was like everybody's yeah. just going to automatically answer with the Google like three word answer. Mm-hmm. That was the appropriate answer. And we were all just going to be in this stream of everybody saying the exact same yeah. thing by email. And uh, that may or may not have happened, but it's super efficient. I, get, I rarely get emails that short, but if I do, I'd be thankful. If you just said, great, sounds good. I'm done. That's, I don't need another paragraph. Yeah, I use those automated replies on Gmail all the time, actually. Ah. Like, the thing is, sometimes they sound too happy, and I don't want to send, like, these really gracious exclamation point responses. So, aside from that fringe <laughs> use case, it sounds like people <laughs> use them more often than, than we would have guessed. But, you know, one element of this that I think no one talks about is, is the privacy element, because this is something that's reading your writing, presumably talking to servers, and, you know, it is part of, mm-hmm. you could say that it could spy on what you're writing. Now, I don't think that's a concern with Grammarly, but... Remember when Google was in trouble, when Gmail was scanning your emails anonymously to provide ads, people were really worried about the privacy component to that. Now, in this case, it seems to be a non-issue. I'm, I'm curious if that's because we've changed how we heal about that as a public or no one's just thought of it, but certainly that's still a, a possible error or something like this in this business model. I think the trade has a lot to do with the business model. So like, first of all, I think consumers are getting a lot more comfortable with understanding like what is being done with their data. And with Google, like you get a lot of utility in a bunch of different ways from Google and they make money by selling ads on your activity and, you know, your uh, engagement and whatever. Um, And I think with Grammarly, uh, like a business model that is direct to consumer or SaaS feels like we deliver you a service and we have to make that service smarter by learning from you. It feels like a pretty transparent trade. And I think we're going to see a lot of like machine learning enabled tools that look like that. That's that. That's good because I think Grammarly is successful because it's useful for the vast majority of people that, that are out there that do type. And everyone writes yeah. at least some words for a living if you're on a computer. Mm-hmm. So uh, back to the round uh, led by General Catalyst. Uh, previously, they had raised $110 million in 2017. Other investors include IVP. And uh, it costs between 12 and 30 bucks a month depending on what you need. And we did we mention that they were bootstrapped for no, we several didn't. years? So they were bootstrapped for, we think... Close to eight years. Close to eight years. Um, Which is interesting just because um, oftentimes companies, you know, go out to raise VC in the first couple of years or even right away. Um, Less often do you see company bootstrap that long and then go on to become, you know, a unicorn, so to speak. Also, one last little detail. Uh, Kate and I were at dinner a while back now and the CEO from Grammarly was there and I met him and I made my same complaint about wanting to bend English. And he was like, here's my business card. Email me. We'll figure it out. And I hate it when a founder is that responsive. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you can't ever talk crap about someone who's like, oh, there's an issue. Let me know. We'll work on it immediately. See, but why did didn't you email tell him? Us? I did not. Why didn't he tell us that they raised $90 million? Yeah, that was kind of weird. That would have been really he, nice. That would have been lovely. Anyways, um, let's move on to a company called Lattice, which has raised um, a $25 million Series C. And the reason why we wanted to bring this one up is because it's an example of preemption. Kate, you knew about how this round came to be. Yeah. Um, so Lattice is a employee performance and em- engagement management tool. So kind of a way for you to n- notify your boss if you're feeling unhappy and for them to know how you're doing overall. Um, the company has raised, you know, some money in the past. Uh, they recently raised $25 million and they were not fundraising at all, but um, 
this is something that's pretty common nowadays. Uh, a firm called Tiger Global approached them and said, hey, we'll, we'll double your valuation. We just want to, we want to invest in you. Like no board seat, nothing is very hands off. Yeah. No board seat? Yeah. I mean, they didn't want one. Tiger Global like didn't take a board seat. So it was just kind of like, I mean, I'm curious what you think about that, but it seemed like they were just like, take the money and grow. And we just want, you know, it's just for them. They, I, th- I think they've been exploring more early stage SaaS companies and, um, and making more bets early on. This is, this is a uh, sort of a massive hedge fund of sorts. Yeah, um, they're quite like... mysterious as well, but um, yeah, they, they are making this play um, and continuing to sort of make bets. Uh, I think as early as like the B. I mean, this is a small C for 2019, but are, are, is, your, yeah. is your firm seeing Tiger kind of drop down into earlier stage B2B SaaS like this? Uh, I'm trying to think about Tiger specifically. I'd say like their, uh, their performance would show they've been really smart investors globally in technology. I think when you see hedge funds more generally like reach into still relatively early stage companies, yeah. um, it, it becomes further and further away from what their traditional like sweet spot of business model has become. Right. And I think you're seeing that because valuations went up most aggressively mm-hmm. um, and, you know, competitive went competitiveness of like sort of being able to invest went up most aggressively in growth rounds first over the last uh, 10 years. So we're seeing that uh, trickle down. So, into so I, I see, I, I think we definitely see more and more players trying to move early, we're a firm that's always been focused on being early stage investors. So it's something we, we think about, but it's still, it's just a, it's a very different way to practice investing. Um, and I think, I actually think this is like a, you know, employee engagement is an interesting category, HR software, something we've done for a long time, but um, we tend to be active investors and take board seats because, you know, early on, first of all, just believing in governance and being like a partner that the entrepreneur wants around the table yeah. in an active way. But also, like, as we've sort of seen with a bunch of companies relatively recently, like, not having governance gets you into trouble over the course of time. Dude, Sarah, Some we, of the we time. weren't going to talk about WeWork the entire episode, and then you just yeah, totally just brought them up. Dropped them I'm, not, I'm not trying to hijack. <laughs> it's totally fine. Well, do you, do you guys take a board seat every single investment? Uh, not every single investment, but, um, like, our core strategy is to do relatively early stage investments where we take board seats. And why so wouldn't that's the, you? That's most of them. Why wouldn't you take a board seat? What would be like an example of a situation in which you would not take one? Um, we, uh, so, so I think some part of it is also just what does the board look like already? Yeah. So like we're super happy to be investors in a company called Roblox. We yeah. wrote a very significant check. Um, my partner, David C is very active with the company, but they also had like a pretty full board of investors already. And so we can be very helpful to Dave, you know, with mm-hmm. his mature company and mature board without saying like, you know, you, you already have a number of partners around the table. We don't feel like we have to have that. Right. Roblox is the, the gaming platform aimed at kids where you can kind of make your own game inside of this. It's, it's, it's kind of like Lego meets Minecraft, but you can make games. Yep, totally. So it's one combination, like community gaming platform um, and game. Yeah, my yeah. friend uh, Matt Kaufman works there and uh, he's been there for a while now and he's having a blast. And because of that, I actually downloaded it and played it because I wanted to get, you know, I wanted to try it out. And I realized I was about two decades above the target age. But if I was a kid, I think it'd be awesome. So uh, let's scoot on to um, Clary really quick. So this is a company that works in uh, sales tooling, which is a SaaS category that I have been uh, seeing, I think more movement in than I expected. I, I didn't know there was enough space or white space in that niche to let a lot of kind of individual vertical SaaS players move in. Um, but the company 
The company raised a $60 million uh, round to build out its, quote, sales analytics and forecasting tool. And I believe it's now worth about $500 million, kind of like half mm. a unicorn. Half and a unicorn. A half a corn, if you will. Um, <laughs> or a very, very kind of small one. Just a calf. A calf. <laughs> what is a unicorn's baby called? I, I'm assuming calf. Yeah. Really? Okay. All right. Um, another company in the space is Avizo. They're actually based in Redwood City. So just down the bay from us, they've raised $30 million, $31 million total. And they're doing what's quote, called, quote, AI-powered guided selling. So a lot of people are in the space. And to me, it makes a lot of sense because every sales team has a software and tooling budget. Why not go after that? It shouldn't all go to pay in Salesforce. Mark Benioff has enough money. I don't know. I mean, are you seeing people still building like early stage companies in the sales enablement space or does it feel more filled in from your perspective? I mean, we really believe that there's like a Cambrian explosion of SaaS companies that are going to be really valuable still happening in the early stages right now. Sales enablement is something that like actually matters to every business. Every business. Um, uh, or, you know, almost all businesses. And I, I think there's, there's an awful lot of room around Salesforce uh, just because it's not as engaging or enabling or as analytical as it could be. Um, and it's a, it's a huge ecosystem. So I think, I think it's an interesting space. It's a little, as you said, you know, there's, there's a number of players now. There's, yeah, but I mean, there's so much TAM. I mean, surely, you know, they don't have to consolidate into one winner. There's going to be a lot of space for probably a, multiple, a multi-party winner set up somewhere down the road. I don't know. I find it pretty exciting. Vertical SaaS, I think is what you were kind of indicating there, is doing well. I've actually talked to people that are building like dental office software that are focused on the dental niche I don't know. Yeah, we definitely think about like verticals, departments, new audiences like SMBs or relatively new audiences. But um, I, I agree with you. I think the TAM is there. And then in an area where you have a lot of players, because a lot of people see the business opportunity, then mm -hmm. we're thinking about like where are the, you know, where are the network plays? Like who is a thesis for why they can be, if not Salesforce, something that big. Do you think we're going to see a startup supplant Salesforce and kind of where it's in the market in the next 10 years? Uh, I hope so. Oh, you um, hope so. Okay. I, I think the, I, I think, and like coming from a user perspective, like there are a lot of people that um, don't want to take every action in Salesforce and don't yes. feel like Salesforce supports like the data and analytics that um, they want to want to go do for their businesses. And it's an amazing company. Don't get me wrong. And I think they've done like very smart strategic things in terms of like they're pretty supportive of their ecosystem, they are. right? And because it embeds them as the database of record for customers, I think if they continue to do that, then they'll continue to do really well. Um, but I, I also think that like the kind of data that people want on their customers and the things they want to enable people with just rapidly changes. So I definitely think it's possible. It, it would be a, a And if you have a good thesis, here. call me. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, let's move on and talk about the global kind of venture scene, if you will. I wanted to bounce some stuff off of you guys. Um, first thing that, that we looked at some data about what was going on in the third quarter, and we saw that Series B rounds domestically were a little bit light in Q3, according to reported uh, data from the, from the three-month period. And globally, Series A rounds were a little bit light. And so we had this kind of weird discrepancy between where in the early stage venture market things were both doing well and not doing well. But before the show, we also mentioned that things seem to be in general, very strong. Yeah. yeah. So. I mean, I feel like that's just us looking for a slowdown somewhere, but I overall, I mean, we're seeing sky high deal value. We're seeing tons of deals. I don't think it's like by any means a, a low year for VC. No. Or, I yeah. Mean, it's, so really it's just, we're seeing a little bit less. I mean, I didn't look at the data, but we're just seeing a little bit less series B rounds in the U S. Yeah. 
enough that that it stood out a little bit, but it wasn't like a catastrophic decline. We're not seeing we're not seeing like a long term Series B crunch. We're also seeing massive Series A's too. So it's kind of like the whole thing, as we talk about all the time, the whole thing is just becoming these these various stages are becoming more and more meshed together and harder to differentiate. Right. As they get larger, a Series yeah. A is no longer five. Now it can be 50 or... Series C can be 20 million or it can be 500 million. Well, like we have a $25 million Series C in today's notes and a $60 million Series D. So apparently numbers just don't matter. Sarah, in terms of like activity in general, are you seeing venture kind of maintain a higher level, like a high plateau? Or are you seeing it still go up or down in terms of how much activity is happening kind of quarter to quarter? Yeah, the last time we looked at the data and talked to our LPs about it, it was, you know, at new highs, right, um, in, last, in the last six months. It doesn't feel to me like there's any less opportunity or any less competition in terms of the amount of capital available. Um, so I, I, don't, I don't feel like it's any different. I think there's a little bit more worriness in, in terms of should we, should we value every company in the, the sort of late stage pre-IPO market, like it's going to be a breakout winner. Like I think people are realizing that that's less healthy, mm-hmm. um, but it's less where we play. And so like we, to your point about, you know, stage, like the definition yeah. is very confusing now. Yeah. Like we focus on early, early is um, I think competitive, but more differentiated than other areas. And it doesn't feel any less busy than it's been in a very long time. To your point about valuations, do you mean sort of people are realizing these inflated valuations are not healthy? Or what do you mean by like, oh, it'll be a standout company, so we should give it a standout company valuation? Well, I don't want to bring us back to SaaS multiples, but I will. Um, But I will. (laughs) No, I I think, uh, I I think the, like when we, when when as an industry tech labels a company, a unicorn or a decacorn or um, uh, like what, what is happening is one individual private investor is saying, I'm willing to make a bet on this company at this price, yeah. right? That doesn't guarantee anything about the company's durability or importance or business model Yeah, it doesn't quality. necessarily mean anything. Either. Right. It's just like, I'm saying that I'm willing to take a career bet on it as an individual investor. Yeah. Um, and, and so I, I think people are just recognizing that that's not necessarily a guarantee. And at some point you have to reckon with like being a great durable company, like profitability or raising more money or the public markets um, or what acquirers think about multiples, for example. And so I think that's healthy for the industry. I'm not predicting that, you know, causes a general turnaround, but like the sentiment I've seen change is not like any less series B, series A interest. It's more, you know, do we, do we really want to assign what is assigning this huge price at the growth stage mean for a company? But going back to your point about multiples, companies that will be breakout companies, I think you said, can engender a higher multiple because you think they're going to be a much stronger eventual result, whereas more quality but not going to be slack companies would get a, a smaller multiple because it's a more conservative bet because you're not as um, expecting that it's going to do as well. And so it would change the math. That makes perfect sense. Yeah, I think like if, if investors were like smart and making a bunch of great decisions about how to choose, that would be exactly what would happen, right? But I actually think that's, you know, there's been a lot of pricing of every company like it's going to be Zoom or Salesforce or Workday. Do you think that was yeah. just the competitive dynamics of the late stage kind of growth stage market? Or do you think that was optimism gone awry on behalf of the VCs and they were just, you know, too rosy tinted in how they viewed the late stage market itself? So it like earlier this year, I gave a presentation to our LPs that said two things can be true at once. We think there's more opportunity than ever before. 
um, in terms of like how good of a business model subscription software is and how yeah. big these companies can get and how capital efficient they can grow. Um, but the other thing that can be true is that there's an awful lot more capital than there's been in certainly the last seven years I've been at venture. Right. So I think both things are true. And one of the challenges is just like you're in great shape if you choose the great companies and not if you price everything like it's Zoom on the Series E. On the uh, subject of profitability, at the early stage, how often are you actually seeing profitable companies that you are investing in? Uh, It's it's uncommon because like I I think about the way um, the name of the game of venture to me is get to market leadership. Um, as quickly as you can in a capital efficient way in a market that we care about, mm-hmm. right? And so like, you know, the priority there is market leadership. Yeah. Um, because whatever else you think about Uber, having, you know, the Uber user base and brand and all of that and network is very valuable, right? So market leadership in SaaS or in consumer is like sort of a core driver of like what venture companies, at least by Greylock, are trying to get to. Um, and usually that overtakes profitability as mm-hmm. an objective in the near term. But like we always want to see, obviously, what the future path toward that right. profitability is. There and needs to be opportunity there, right, to become profitable Not one just day. opportunity, but like a pretty clear set of principles for how we're going to But that move. hasn't always been, right? Like that's why we've seen companies like WeWork get to the stage they never had the clearest path, but they still were able to, you know, actually reach a valuation of $47 billion. But like exactly what you said, that was because one investor or SoftBank continued to, um, you know, expand their valuation over deals. It wasn't like it was multiple investors. Like they really took the lead there being like, hey, we think this company is worth nearly $50 billion. I'm always wary to use WeWork or the We Company as a as a data point because it's such an outlier. It, it is, almost it feels is. broken. But an example of this would be Dropbox because they were worth $10 billion back in 2014. And they're worth $8.1 billion today. So someone took a bet on that company full of faith and excitement about the business and ended up overvaluing it uh, pretty early. And then that almost put like a, a heavy collar around their neck because then they had to kind of carry that around with them through their IPO and set overly high expectations. If they'd been priced at $6 billion back then, then they would have gone public at 10 and looked like a huge success story. So you can get ahead of your skis. I'm curious though if the if if the soft bank implosions that Kate mentioned yeah. will change sentiment enough to bring some of that enthusiasm and overpricing down among other growth. Seems like investors. VCs are thinking, I mean, I don't know. You guys probably read the, was it Fred Wilson? Yeah, Fred Wilson. He wrote, okay. he wrote a blog post about how so many companies like say in the real estate business are getting tech valuations when they should be valued like real estate businesses. And that was what went wrong with WeWork. I did they, read that, yeah. Yeah, so I think that, I think that ignited a big conversation around like things like profitability, things like um, software multiples versus like real estate multiples. Or, you know, there are so many businesses that are like, insurance businesses, but they're tech enabled or real estate businesses, but they're tech enabled or like, mm-hmm. you know, all these different things where they overlap from industries. And because of that, they've gotten tech valuations, but maybe we need to reevaluate how companies are valued just like overall. Yeah. So when we talk about SaaS multiples, which apparently we just talk about all, all the show, which is great. The reason why SaaS multiples can be so high and there are multiple of revenue and not EBITDA or like net income is because you have incredibly high margin revenue it's often recurring and it often has an expansion component built into it, which means that that revenue is profitable and then durable. A company that does like groceries usually trades at 0.5x revenue because it's the opposite. Right. So the question then becomes, where do you value Instacart? And this is where the game begins. Do you value Instacart more like a software company or do you value them more like a grocery business? And you can apply that to a lot of other areas inside That's of That's a great venture. example because they are 
they're definitely overvalued. What are they worth? Like $8 billion? Well, I'm not going to say, I, I've not seen their numbers, so I don't know offhand. Maybe they've got amazing gross margins and I'm totally wrong. But I mean, if you ascribe a 10x multiple to everything that has a tech enabled component and it doesn't have the, the main qualities that make SaaS companies distinct and therefore more valuable on a per dollar revenue basis, you're going to make a mistake. And that's a bit of like, it feels like, like um, anti-lunacy coming into the market, which is quite enjoyable to watch. I, I think it's exactly what Alex said in terms of, uh, does the company have fundamental advantages in their business model? That means you should treat them like an advantage business that should have a 10 X revenue multiple or not. Right. Um, and so just saying something as a tech company doesn't make it so for sure. I think it goes down to every specific example because there's lots of moats around different companies, including customer relationships and network yep. ecosystem, just being a SaaS business, which is a great business. Um, but I, I think one of the things that like, I love for the press, the industry, entrepreneurs to glorify as much as like raised huge round at massive valuation is like when companies can sort of achieve what I talked about, which is like market leadership with amazing capital efficiency. Mm -hmm. Like that means something's really working. Right. And that is not something that people sort of talk about. And it's very rare. But some of some of the companies that we've been a part of that are like franchise companies like Palo Alto Networks is a $20 billion plus security company. They only ever spent less than $60 million in venture. That's crazy. Right. And, and I think that's kind of unthinkable for a company of their size. Um, but uh, so, so I, I feel like there's been this sort of fake um, choice that companies are making between like growth and like great business model, capital efficient. Um, but it doesn't just trying to be capital efficient and looking for like a fundamentally strong technology driven business model doesn't mean you're not ambitious, right? Yeah, no, to be clear, but also going back to your point about the media focusing on the wrong things, I would love- I meant everybody. No, 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 but yeah. I think it's a really fair point, but I just want to point out why that's the case because I agree with yeah. you. I don't think you're wrong, but I would, I can't talk about a company's, you know, CAC to LTV ratio because they won't tell me. Mm -hmm. I can't that talk about sense. their blended gross margins because they won't tell me, but they will always tell me how much money they raised and from whom. And so that was right. one fact that I have. Yep, that's the anchor events. people have. And so yep. you run with it. Because they share that with us and then it gives us kind of like the avenue to actually write about them. But a lot of these companies that are really great businesses that are capital efficient, um, kind of like Zoom was for a long time, that was not a company on my radar really at all before they IP filed IPO. And I think it's because they didn't necessarily seek any press, which is fair. They were heads down and they didn't really feel the need to do that. But there are companies like that who certainly deserve to be profiled in the same way, but aren't because they may not seek it out or they just don't really share. And we work as the example of this gone as wrong yeah. as it can be. I mean, we ended up writing <clears> what <throat> dozens of profiles about a, apparently one of the worst executives that we've ever seen in the history of venture capital and private equity. Whoops. Oops. And, and we called the, what did the media call me? You know, ex, not extravagant, um, eccentric. eccentric. Turns out he was just nuts. Whoops. So that's kind of on us. Sorry about that. So, but mostly it's all Bank's fault, but anyways, um, uh, last point on this, Smile Direct Club went public, uh, I think in September, we talked about it on the show. And if you want to see a real live market example of public investors say no to private investors' optimism about a company's revenue quality, observe its share price and its revenue multiple compression since it went public. It's a fun little homework assignment because that's good times. Tell it industry. Hey everyone, don't forget this episode is brought to you by Shares Post. Kate loves that word. Um, let's talk about sobriety before we go. All right. Okay. So I profiled a startup called Tempest about a week ago. Um, they raised a $10 million Series A from a venture capital firm called Mavron. 
And this is a company that has a virtual sobriety school. It is a, I think it's an eight week program, mm-hmm. cost about $600. And they give you a bunch of different um, resources, lectures, Q&A sessions. Um, it's weekly, right? Yes. Um, I think it's it's weekly lectures, but there's also a lot more that goes on every week. There's worksheets. Mm-hmm. Um, you're always able to sort of communicate with your classmates. And the goal is to help you get sober yep. um, at the end of this eight weeks. So Sober from alcohol, to be clear. Sober from alcohol. So they... I mean, it's, it was interesting. So I spoke with the founder. Um, her name is Holly. She's also writing two books, one of them on her own methodology to sobriety. She is a recovering alcoholic. Um, and she kind of claims she sort of made this new, she's carved this new path to sobriety and she thinks it's really great. Um, she says there's no similarities between AA, which is um, a really common path to sobriety for, for a lot of folks. She said there's no similarities between Tempest and uh, AA. Other than that, they are helping people get sober. Yeah. So I agree with that because I'm not a regular. So, well, one, I'm an alcoholic. Two, I've gone to rehab. And three, I don't like AA, which makes me unpopular in a lot of sober circles, which is why whenever I see something come up that is not an AA or 12-step based program, I'm immediately attracted to it because it's probably a non-religious thing that you don't have to show up to all the time in in like church basements, which is where AA meetings often are. Um, the, The reaction among me and some of my other sober friends, we have like Twitter DM groups about this stuff, is that we're always a little bit leery of there being a profit component into anything that involves mental health and taking care of people. But at the same time, if this company does well financially, maybe it can bring something to the market that can reach more people and therefore capitalism will actually allow us to extend this type of service. Certainly. Like we talked about a little bit before, it's not a net negative. I think there are some issues with the profitability element. Um, They are charging a good amount of money for the class. They are also charging a subscription fee for you to stay as part of the community. Yeah. Um, which of course you'd want to, because it's not an eight week journey. It's much longer than that. So I think, um, of course you would want to sign up for the subscription community. Um, I think that this is less something that will truly help clinically addicted people, but yeah. will more be targeting this new generation or cohort or whatever you want to call of people who are really attracted to these startups that are offering, um, non-alcoholic beverages, um, to people who, you know, you know, there's always think pieces about millennials not liking to drink or not drinking. And I think this is for that. So one thing that I get a lot of people reaching out about is they're not really, they're not physically addicted to alcohol, but they've been drinking too much and they need to take a break. And I, I, I love these people. It's great to talk to them, to encourage them, to get them on like a 30 day break, just to see how it feels. If you can't do 30 days, data point, if you can data point, but if this is a way to help people that are on the edge of this getting worse, to teeter back into safety and take better control of their lives and make better, healthier choices for them and the people around them, hugely in favor of it. If it ends up being something that people that are in the throes of serious addiction misuse as a way to actually get what the help that they need, then I'm less enthused about it. But there's one more component of this that we wanted to touch on, which is that it's aimed at um, women and... Historically oppressed individuals was the wording of the company. Um, so the, the, it is true that AA is majority white and majority male. Um, yeah, according to AA's own data about, you know, some of the, the polls that they've done with their participants. Um, so this is sort of something that's tailored for women and, 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 and again, um, historically oppressed individuals. Um, what that really means is pretty hard to articulate because um, I can't tell by looking at the website. I can see that it has branding that is very D to C, that is very startup-y. And sure, that might be a, a, um, attractive to some women. I don't know otherwise what they might be doing that could actually better help those people. Well, you can't start any worse than AA did. Cause if you read the AA big book, there's literally a chapter entitled to the wives 
as if women couldn't be alcoholics since it was only a man's problem. So like, right. if, when well, it, AA was found in like 1935 too. So it's like a completely it, different... It shows, but right. there's a religious adherence to the text and people do not want to amend the big book in any way. So this persists and they still hand it out to women. And so to me, if, if you just don't start from an inherently sexist position, you'll do better than AA well, has historically. Taking a step back, just like, what do you think generally about all these brands, um, these new beverage brands? There's so many of them. There's CBD infused soda. There's like... There's House, which we talked about, which mm -hmm. is um, l still alcoholic, but just less alcoholic. And they're all getting venture capital rounds. Yeah, D2C brands are a little outside of my zone at Greylock. And I think we, we generally have been investing in like the growth of e-commerce and new distribution yeah. channels to customers. Like incredibly interesting, like real trend. I think the question of like, how large does any one of these brands become? What is right. the durability of that? Like a lot of these companies are getting to outcomes too, mm -hmm. right? But I think it's just, it's just about focus. And I, I think like I'm a consumer of all of this stuff. Yeah. Um, I'd say we are generally more interested in things that like enable the entire ecosystem. So as like a, as a consumer, Amazon infrastructure, yeah. not necessarily the beverage, even if some of these, I think, are great real businesses. As a consumer, are you more bullish or bearish on D2C in general? Not as a VC, but just like as a, as a person? Oh, as a, as a human being, I yeah. buy a lot of stuff that advertises to me <laughs> on Instagram. That's a brand I've never heard of where I'm like, oh, my, no brand loyalty. my people, right? And that's why CAC has gone up so high for Instagram ads because they, they, they absolutely work. Um, yeah, and there's one theory on it like that their Instagram is this amazing channel to reach consumers and with like aspirational lifestyle advertising lots of consumer brands, mm -hmm. you know, was an arbitrage that existed for a certain amount of time. And like now it it's since gone away, since gone away. I like buying DTC brands in brick and mortar stores. Well, aren't you just contrarian? I feel like that's honestly the only time that I ever buy stuff that's created to be DTC. I'm just amazed by being off Instagram, how blissfully unaware of all DTC I am. Like, because I've been off for about a year, year and a half now. It's fun. I just have a lot more money because I don't have more stuff. It's, <laughs> it's this great trade-off that I, that I have. Anyways, we are, we are over time. So right. thank you for coming on with us yeah, today. Thanks for we joining appreciate us. it. And Kate, I will, uh, I'll see you soon. See you next time. You can find us on Twitter at Alex and at Kate Clark tweets, or you can email us at equitypod at techcrunch.com. And we are now on YouTube. Watch the full episode on the TechCrunch YouTube page. And if you really want to support the show, please rate us and review us on iTunes. And you can also subscribe to our podcast on Spotify and all the other places where you get podcasts. And a big thank you to our producer, Christopher Gates, our executive producer, Henry Pickovet. And we will see you all right here next week. I mean, I wouldn't want to hear me all the time either. So you're fine. Chris is going to start just like turning you off while you're doing <laughs> your rants about like SAS multiples. What, what in the world is more interesting than SAS multiples? So that is my favorite topic. So many things. Like literally nothing. I was trying to figure out if they're unicorn babies, what they're called. <laughs> and I can't find an answer on the internet.